time for Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network. I'm Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks and your designated driver. Now, it could be you're completely new to the show and you may have just found your favourite new podcast. That's fantastic. But we've also got this lovely, loyal, warm audience we're delighted to welcome back time and time again. Whichever it is, we're the free-speaking, big-thinking, eclectic and eccentric show for everyone whatever decade or century you started watching or listening along to the ongoing adventures of our hero doctor who so come and step into our tardis and share this journey together here with us on type 40. <laughs> yes here we are again diving back into the vortex at the beginning of a brand new recording block for us here at type 40. we're raring to go raring to talk I should say, and eager to catch up with the man who's done some uh, space, if not time traveling, since the last time I spoke to him the, over the last few weeks. It's the recently relocated Mr. Simon Horton. <laughs> yes, I'll definitely be moving in space, that's for sure. And, and there isn't enough time, so so yeah, it's uh, it's all relevant. I'm moved, I'm here, I'm finally in, so, so yeah, new background for me um that will change uh, as i as i continue to settle in but it's good to be back here um, yeah that's we i've redecorated don't like it <laughs> uh, it doesn't like it yet i'm sure we'll get there uh, simon in the new year over on our social medias we asked our listeners and our viewers the type 40 companions out there what they'd like to see and hear on the show and pretty much the top of that list when it came to guests was one person and seeing as we like to look after you out there, we've materialised Richard Molesworth, the writer of Wiped, the uh, the Doctor Who guide to missing episodes and producer of what I would call a seminal Doctor Who documentary in Origins. Yes, he's coming back, isn't he, for this special show. Yeah, it's always good to have Richard back. I mean, as people know, Richard and I go back years and years, decades, far too many decades, too many to remember, and our paths keep crossing. And he's a, he's a top bloke, uh, and it's always a pleasure. Uh, he, he knows his stuff. Always great to chat to him. I think this is what it is. I think he's able to break down in the way that he communicates, sometimes quite complex mm -hmm. situations and information, in a mm -hmm. way that we can all, you know, even I can understand, in a sort of crystal clear English way, because he's, he's a very normal, down-to-earth guy. Yeah, and he's one of us. He's a, he's a, he's a super yeah. fan at the end of the day. <laughs> but of course, even though Richard's documentary, that Origins, was very much about the, the beginning of Doctor Who, this show, we're speaking about everything that happened towards the other end of the classic run, aren't we? Yeah, it's a little bit like um, in, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you've gone from the Big Bang Burger Bar to the restaurant at the end of the universe, haven't we? It's it's always controversial, isn't it? Whenever you talk about this particular era of the show, it comes with a, a degree of controversy and conflict, divisive opinions. But there's always so much to talk about because it's such an interesting era of the show once you yeah. get towards the end. Yes, it had many, many troubled years as it was drawing to a close. But that brings its own degree of interest with it. It's not, it's certainly not a boring story, that's for sure. I was thinking about it yesterday, and are these really the sort of twilight days? Because it could appear that way, given how it all ended, how the classic run ended. And yet this is a chunk of time that takes up pretty much over a third of the classic series entire lifetime. So it's, it wasn't like that at all, was it? It's probably, unfair that it gets tagged like that that these were the dying days because it was so alive for most of that time 
the John Nathan Turner era in particular, yes, you say it's the, a third, a third of the entire run of the show. When you think of all the other producers that ran on the show in that classic years, they all ran for what a maximum of, I think probably a maximum of three years. I don't think anybody yeah, went long for years. So obviously it was going to have its ups and downs as an era. If my personal favorite um, producer uh, in Philip Hinchcliffe, he'd been there 10 years. I don't doubt it would have changed enormously. There would have been parts of it that I didn't like. The thing that's interesting about those those final 10 years of Doctor Who is the variety of material. It certainly never stands still. I mean, you look at any single season and not one of them is like one of the other ones. Every single see, it, no, season right. of John Nathan Turner's era is different. There isn't one that looks like the other one. That is an achievement. Could that be because John Nathan Turner, for all the things that he was, he wasn't complacent was he about this show about his career and about the the show's connection i think with the viewing public i think he had a very keen eye for what was going on in the broader pop culture landscape what people were latching onto what was going to get bums on seats is that expression bums on seats he was a showman he was an entertainer he was a show-off, I suppose you could say. A very colourful character in every sense of the word who, who brought that through into the show. And he was brave with a lot of the choices that he made, whether they paid off or not, wasn't he? Bums on seats was one of his favourite expressions. That's what he was concentrating on. And at the end of the day, that's his job. He should be concentrating on that. The thing is with John, he wasn't egotistical. He, he very much wanted to be out there. He wanted to be seen. He was the first... Uh, and only producer, actually, who the general public would have had some concept of knowing. But John Nathan Turner laid the foundations for what ultimately became the celebrity produ uh, producer. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and ultimately the title that we now know of as showrunner. But, but as I say, he, he wasn't egotistical at all. He wanted to be seen, he wanted to be out there, but it was all for the good of the show. Whatever you think of John, and he was a controversial character. You have to take your hat off to him. For all of the problems that he had, he never once let that cloud his professional ability to run the show. He made some hugely questionable decisions, made some really bad choices, I think. But he did it all with integrity. He did it all with the, with the show and the forefront of his mind he was doing it for the best of the show and, and and he was doing it for for the viewers none of us get the right the, the right decisions every time i often think that for, certainly from 1985 onwards he seems to be a man who was fighting small fires every four five six months at the most uh, creatively i don't think i would have envied it him and and now all these decades on we're seeing a succession, aren't we, of publications and productions yeah. that are looking yeah. back at this era through slightly different lenses. We've had Richard Marson's book, Totally Tasteless. We've had Chris Chapman's fantastic film, his documentary movie, Showman. And here, with this brand new book from Richard Molesworth, the John Nathan Turner production diary, we get that sort of the third leg of a, of a tripod, if you like. Those three things should complement one another. And I do wonder, what John Nathan Turner would think about all this. I do feel we are going through a degree of re-evaluation with the John Nathan Turner era. It was, for anybody that lived through it, uh, certainly in the latter half of the 80s, it, it was it was unpleasant. And I am pleased that now we are beginning to re-evaluate the era and, and celebrate what was good about it. 
And so I think John would be really pleased to think that we were just looking at it again and rethinking it through. And however bad it got, it wasn't that bad. It was never that bad, if you know what I mean. I think we would, I think we, as, as fans, we just get passionate about it. It's as simple as that. Really, this is my era of the show when I was most into it, most gorging on, on Doctor Who magazine and Starburst and anything that I could find out, those early Mythmaker tapes that Keith Barnfather's real time put out. I was anything that I could get about this era and the eras that had gone before, I was soaking it all up. Yeah. And so to know that this was a history that was going on whilst I was on that sofa, my bum was firmly on the seat. So these yeah. are the episodes that I know inside out. Just this conversation with Richard, in fact, certainly changed my perception about that time, about what I'd seen. And it doesn't harm it in any way either. And I think that you're bound to hear things and to view JNT slightly differently. Before that, it's my duty to remind you that each and every edition of this show, past, present and future, is just a tap or two away on the device of your choice if you know where to look. There's dozens of great conversations, reviews, previews, interviews, geek outs and deep dives with all our regulars and other awesome guests. We know there's something for every fan at type40.podbean.com. There'll be more about all of that a little later on as well as our usual making contact with the matrix of all knowledge that we call the Fandom Podcast Network for a word about all the other shows and all those other conversations that are going on over there. I think we've kept people waiting long enough, haven't we? It's time to uh, spend more time and make more space for another great conversation with Richard Molesworth. This is your third time on the show. Get yourself primed for all things John Nathan Turner and his production diary. What secrets may lie within its pages and find out now. The Doctor Who family is full of colourful characters. They wear Inverness capes, eat jelly babies, they play recorders or spoons, and they don't like carrot juice <laughs> but those are just the ones in the shop window if you like aren't they it's also a series boasting almost as many wonderful originals off screen uh, perhaps the most long-standing contentious and recognizable of them all was john nathan turner john produced the series throughout the 1980s but had worked on doctor who for far far longer he's the one who uh, didn't like sonic screwdrivers he sang cabaret drank cocktails and wore those Hawaiian shirts. Unmistakable and imitable. <laughs> John Nathan Turner was indeed a showman, yet it's perhaps the case that uh, it's all of the above that in recent years have overshadowed his professional achievements. He'd enjoyed, if not a uh, meteoric rise to the producer's chair, certainly an enviable one. And in his brand new book, writer and researcher and friend of Type 40, Richard Molesworth, has tasked himself with detailing Nathan Turner's time in that role throughout the classic series' most turbulent years. And he's back with Simon and I to tell us some of that story today. Hello, Richard. Good afternoon, Dan, and good afternoon, Simon. Welcome back to the show, Richard. We're talking about one of my favourite eras of the show today, the JNT era, what's not to like? Well, at the time, there seemed to be quite a lot. It was very contentious. Yeah. Um, if you were in fandom as, as you know, uh, we were. Dan, I think you were maybe a bit too young to be around in the 80s. Um, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> compared to what uh, 
the state of the series is now, John's time doesn't look that contentious in retrospect. But I joined the Dwas in 1981, expecting, you know, fans to be fans and to be positive. And there was a, a little ripple of undercurrent about Nathan Turner even then. But as the years went by, things became a lot more polarised and I never really understood it. But what I did understand is my reaction to the series. And as the 80s wore on, I have to say, I became less and less enthusiastic about the state of Doctor Who. So I know, Simon, you said it was your favourite period. Some of some of John's stuff is my absolute favourite Doctor Who stuff. Um, but it's, some of it is is not. There are some real lows and some really good highs. Um, and it's that, that dichotomy of John's time as a as a producer, which I, I still find fascinating to this day, the way that there was a kind of consistency to Graham Williams and Philip Inchcliffe and Barry Letts and to all the others, really. Whereas John, you never knew what you were going to get one year to the next, one story to the next, one doctor to the next. Yeah, it was it was scattershot. I think is is a fair way to describe it. It was scattershot, and certainly yes. I mean, I it was one of my favourite eras of the show, um, or at least one half of the eighties was one of my favourite eras of the show. And I leave you to in your imagination as to whether it was the first half or the second half that that that, that hit my buttons. I, I mean, yeah, you're right, Richard, in that it was a very divisive era. Do you think that was partially because John? was the first producer really to bring fandom into the fold uh, and embrace fandom and get involved in fandom? And, and was it that he just brought fandom too close to him? The people that made Doctor Who always had a relationship with the fans, but when John Nathan Turner came along, um, the whole nature, I think, of fandom changed. Um, the way the Dwas was becoming more organized and were doing more conventions, John saw that as a platform for him to talk directly to the assembled multitude. And in about 1981 or 82, the American conventions really started going. And I think his first big trip to America was for Panopticon West in 81. And that was of a scale of magnitude far greater than anything that could be done in the UK. And that I think was a, a defining moment in his way of understanding what the the potential for interacting with fans was that had a i have to say detrimental effect on some of the decisions he made as a producer from then on in i think you well, speak about john as a as a man and as a professional in very very reasoned and sort of holistic and, and balanced way you said that he's as a character as a person john had interested you over all these years even though you weren't the biggest fan you're sort of fascinated by how he come to produce what he produced what was your mindset when you came at this book? Why now in particular? I think what fascinated me about John, when I was a fan in the 80s, it's very easy to just see the programme, say, oh, that's rubbish. Uh, anyone could do better. You know, the standard fan response, and we've all done it, and we're all guilty of it. But about 15, 20 years ago, when the DVD range started, I began producing documentaries for the DVD range things like the the origins documentary on the beginning box set and um, the end game on survival and various making ofs and you start to have an appreciation for the production process and nobody ever ever sets out to make a bad program 
And, you know, I, I say this as one of the producers of the Doctor Who After Party in 2013. <laughs> um, you bring that up every time we speak to you, and I told you I love that. <laughs> um, and it's very easy sometimes for things to go wrong, even when you've got the best of intentions to begin with. Um, production is all about making compromises. Everything you do is a compromise, and it's how you manage those compromises to get as near to what your vision of the programme is. You take that as your starting point. John Nathan Turner never ever set out to make bad Doctor Who, but then you have to consider what were the factors that that made things turn out the way they did, and you start looking at Warriors of the Deep, for example, and you can see that that was just a calamitous clash of so many different factors, many of which were outside of John's control, and he had to manage them as best he could, because you had to get the program made on those studio days in those you know short bursts of frenetic energy of an evening in the studio, three days, studio blocks, blah, blah, blah. And something obviously um, had to be made as a result of that, no matter what went wrong with the effects, with the props, with the costumes, just get on with it. That wasn't necessarily a, a fault with John, that was a fault with the BBC and the way they made programmes in those days. Because Terence Dix used to speak like that as well, didn't he? He'd say, just get it on the TV and, and yeah. Terence Ambrose let's. Absolutely. You always ask Terence what was his overriding uh, thought when he was making a story. He was saying my overriding thought was for them not to be 25 minutes of black screen on BBC One on a Saturday night. And you can't argue with that. You really can't. Doctor Who really should have had more resources than the BBC threw at it. But the BBC saw Doctor Who in the same way that it saw Poldark or the Anedian Line or Bergerac or uh, Softly Softly. It was a drama production it had to work to the same production requirements as all the other drama series did and John had to manage that now with his predecessors with Barry and Philip you know I'm thinking in the 70s predominantly with colour tv and studio rehearsals and the demands on the production weren't as much as I think they were in John's time when the expectation for better model work and better special effects um, were there you know the post Star Wars post Close Encounters um, expectations could never be matched on the BBC budget but there could have been a better way of compromising that. Did maybe John, uh, what, was he too ambitious do you think? Did he overreach himself? Was it that he was just too scattershot and he wasn't as you said earlier he wasn't as focused on his style as maybe Barry Letts was as Philip Hinchcliffe was? Barry had come from directing and had a very good idea of structure Philip, before he became a producer on Doctor Who, I think he was a script editor with ATV on things like General Hospital. So he had a good idea of structure. Graham Williams was developing scripts and was a script writer and a script editor before he became a producer. You know, they all knew what they were doing when it came to the beats and rhythms and the, the dramatic structure of a drama production. Whereas John came from the people that balanced the books. He was a production unit manager. He was, you know, interested, not interested, but responsible for the finances and for the nuts and bolts. And I don't think he ever had a clear idea of how to produce a programme in the way that Barry and Philip and Graham did. He became too reliant on his script editors. And when you think of John's era, Certainly, I don't think of John as having one era. I think of him as having the Chris Bidmead era, the Eric Sayward era, yeah. and the Andrew Cartmel era. But John, I don't think, had the experience or had the nous really to 
put his own stamp on the series. He was too reliant on other people doing it. And I think the best results often came when he sat back and just let people have 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 their head a little bit. I mean, Andrew Cartmel, he had a really unique vision for the series. He probably wasn't as experienced in in terms of structure, but he, the amount of um, writers he brought in, they perhaps were a bit rough around the edges, but um, we're doing some very interesting things. And just going back to you know, a, an earlier question, how you view the series. What, now I've been doing the Blu-rays for a few years and you really get to see, um, you know, you have to watch stuff again and again and again, uh, and you get to see things like the studio material and it gives you a greater appreciation of the pressures that the program makers were under uh, and the way the stories were, were being structured um, to be produced. I find myself now, even in the most shoddiest of, of, of Doctor Who productions from the 80s, I can always find something to go, oh, that's okay, that's a good idea. I can see why they did that. And you can also see why the things that didn't work, don't work. And if John perhaps had had a bit more about him, he would have veered away from some of those situations, but he didn't, and it is what it is. Ultimately, John, I think, was very passionate about Doctor Who and always wanted Doctor Who to be as good as it could be. But I don't think he necessarily knew how to do that at times. Do you think? Do you think maybe in that case it was the script editors that were that were steering it in the way that you know I look at the first half of the Nathan Turner era and it looks looks far more confident and focused on what it's doing than the latter half, uh, which looks a little bit more experimental, a little bit more like it's thrashing around trying to find its identity. Do you have a thought about why that is? Is that just because John was so tired by that point and, and as we as we know, he really wanted to leave the show? I, I think when he joined, he, he kind of got on the treadmill and the treadmill, you know, the Doctor Who production procedures were what he inherited. Um, you know, he, he upped the ante a little bit by getting the 26 weeks turned into 28 weeks. And Graham Williams always struggled to get 26 weeks, uh, 26 episodes really? made. Um, in, in a 52-week year to actually voluntarily take on another two episodes of production and to have it in the same time frame was a remarkably um, assured um, <laughs> thing to do. He had in Tom Baker um, somebody who had his own challenges, but certainly when it came to um, delivering the lines and hitting the spot generally was exactly what you needed. And the, you know, the public generally loved him. So he inherited a, a series that was able to run itself almost at the time. All John had to do was find the stories. Now with Chris Bidmead, Chris had a very interesting way of looking at the series. He was very anti-Douglas Adams. He really liked Douglas Adams, but didn't like what Douglas's approach to the series was in terms of humour and wanted to move it totally in the other direction. And I think at the time with Barry Letts as the executive producer, I think that was also Barry's want in terms of the production so certainly Chris Bidmead and Barry Letts I think were singing from the same hinge sheet and John wasn't really in a position to rock the boat being the you know the new boy at the time so that that first Tom Baker season you know he he does make some absolute big calls at the time you know the theme tune change and the title sequence change um, were massive the changing of the incidental music um, it certainly made um, all the stories seem an event to actually sit down and watch and listen and be immersed in. That it made a statement to the television landscape as well, generally though, didn't it, Richard, at a time where Doctor Who was facing opposition 
with whatever ITV were throwing at it. They were, they were determined, weren't they, to dent its ratings, to sort of find their answer to Doctor Who and gradually sort of bring it down. And you could argue, argue that they did, ironically, with Book Rogers succeed in doing that for a little, for a little while. But to see Doctor Who looking and sounding like it was um, preempting what was going to happen in the 80s aesthetically, that would make anybody sit up and pay attention, I think. I certainly, I, I remember at school people who'd kind of ditched Doctor Who in the wake of Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. All of a sudden, okay, some of them admitted that they were watching it again, but <laughs> others didn't. But everybody was aware that there was something new about it. There was a new broom, even if we may not have known that the name at the end of the credits was what? The, the fundamental, the, the essential thing that had changed. I think it did sort of ring out across the television landscape and and probably would have made John Nathan Turner in actually I'm about to I'm double thinking this now as I'm about to say it, but it because I've heard what the BBC was like then but to uh, so confidently reinvent something after it had been on for like 16 17 years did that sort of whip him up into a, into a frenzy of uh, creativity and increased confidence when he saw how the audience had taken to it, the fans had taken to it, and presumably the, the management at the BBC also noticed that confidence that this is someone who really knows what they're doing and he's got the budget under control too. I think there is something to that, but it probably wasn't to the, the, the benefit of Doctor Who itself. I think John's bosses saw what John had done, the innovations he'd made, and season 18, did get off to a shaky start ratings wise because of um, mainly Buck Rogers on ITV. But that after Christmas the, the, with Warriors Gate and the, the, the ratings started climbing. Because it but holds its have... line, doesn't it? It's made its editorial decision about where it's going to go. Just uh, exactly as you say, Chris Bidmead had made that decision and it holds the line. It doesn't really renege on that. I suppose it does perhaps a little with Megalos being a sort of hangover script. But other than that, it walks that line steadily for those 20 odd weeks. Yeah, but at that point, you've got the new Doctor coming in, Peter Davison. Then with season 19, you realise you've got a whole new programme, essentially. You've got a new title sequence, new music, new way of, of doing incidentals, new cast, you know, complete change of cast between season 18 and season 19. Which is probably why the BBC said, right, we're going to take it away from Saturday time and show two episodes a week on a, you know, in a midweek slot. And I think that was probably the worst thing that could have happened to Doctor Who at the time. It did well in the ratings because people were now curious, why, why have they done this with Doctor Who? Why have they moved it to this new slot? And Peter Davison is good in all creatures, great and small. Doctor Who became very viewer friendly under Peter Davison. John, with Eric Sayward, they, they were driving the show in a way that I don't think any other producer and script editor would have done in the past in terms of pandering to the fans and we, we get back to that that point we we're talking earlier about how John's interaction with the fans had an effect on the program things like Earthshock were definitely done to please the fans and to have the I said the flans then to please the fans <laughs> and to have the flashbacks too many FLs in this sentence um flashback sequence as well and people like Ian Levine who was a big fan of the show and had got to know John privately he had a lot of influence on on john's thinking at the time and again that probably wasn't a good thing for the series this uh, seems like a timely arrival for a book of this nature though rich because of all those things that you're talking about all those twists and turns in jnt's story the john nathan turner doctor who production diaries and that's very very precise so what are the aims of it and and, and why now 
last part first the why now it was something i i decided to do during lockdown in 2020 when that that came in um i got thanks to stephen cranford who was a good friend of john's um stephen inherited a lot of john's doctor who paperwork and effects after he and gary passed away and stephen very kindly had passed a lot of that paperwork to um paul venesis and um steve roberts and myself and various others that were at the time doing the dvd range um, in the hope that it would be of use to to the range and you know lots of it was very immediately useful like the um the comedian clip from the awakening 71 yeah. edit which um the, the only copy of that was was on a vhs that john held um, but a lot of things were not immediately interesting, one of which was a oh. big file of, of John's expenses claims. Um, but I started going through that and you found dates he was having lunch with Dudley Simpson, dates he was going out to see uh, and have a chat with Elizabeth Sladen uh, when he would get a taxi to go and see Peter Davison and you suddenly realised Okay, he was. This was the day that he was taking Dudley Simpson to lunch to tell him he wasn't going to be doing any more work on Doctor Who. This is when John was looking to try and tempt this Laden back to bridge the gap between Tom Baker and Peter Davison. You know, the idea was to get Sarah Jane yeah. back towards the end of season eighteen for a, three or four stories, maybe. And he's and I suddenly realised that you could start putting together a time frame of what John was doing really from from the expenses and then there were other bits of paperwork as well there's a, a file of um, requests from other BBC departments either use of clips in a series or want we want to do a skit on three of a kind say and, and stuff yeah. like that and a lot of that was completely new to me in that were a lot more detailed bits for when John was talking to the producers of the generation game um, to do um, uh, little, um, you know, bits where they had to guess robots. You know, there, there was a Cyberman yeah, yeah, yeah. and a K9 and there was Metal Mickey. I and, that. and incredibly, there was a lot of correspondence about trying to get the fifth Doctor, Nissa and Tegan into an episode of It's a Knockout. Who knew? Yeah, um, that never happened, thank God. Um, <laughs> so all of this to me was yeah, all new material and it was all it was all dated so you could start throwing these into a timeline and put them all in chronological order then you start cross-referencing that with production schedules and studio bookings and all of the recording dates um, a, a lot of the paperwork we try and make available now in the blu-ray box sets as pdf documents most of the gaps started filling up and you knew what john was doing on any well more or less any particular day of the week an extraordinary it, wealth of, of sort of the minutiae yeah. of putting this show together literally from the notions in his head to getting it on the screen i've just had this vision richard of yourself and paul and your other familiars people like chris chapman in a darkened room with a wall full of a big a big plan of the center of london joining bits of string bits of bits of wire across it with those little pins and maybe with little little sort of taxis moving them along the along a map of london he was there then he was there and triangulating it all that would have been a lovely thing to do but we were in <laughs> lockdown so i couldn't leave <laughs> or anyone else it was something just I had go to with do. it <laughs> yeah well uh, well in a perfect world uh, something like that would have been a fun thing to do what my project was was to try and 
draw a line from you know the starting point to the finishing point of, of John's time as producer of Doctor Who and track what he was doing, who he was talking to, and then try and work out why this is of interest. So it's not all bare facts, you know. I do try and contextualize yeah. a lot of the lot of the details in there and, and say this is important because and that's me speaking in my own voice. It's not me trying to um, impose anything on, on the actual facts in the paperwork. Um, and maybe I don't get it all right, but, you know, I, I, I try and give some well, context. Well, I, I have noticed, Richard, in your writing style, even though I can hear your voice in there, you still maintain a certain, a certain distance too. Obviously, everybody's got personal taste, but if you've got sort of biases or preconceived ideas, I get the impression that that distance is sort of there for you as much as it is for the reader. Well, you have to do that. I mean, I certainly have an opinion on John, but I don't think my opinion is of anyone's interest but mine. And it's not my job to tell other people what to think of John. And I try and be as uh, as dispassionate about um, as many things I can. But but it, it's something I learned when I was doing the Robert Holmes biography, that you have to try and be dispassionate, no matter how much you, you admire this guy as a writer, you've got to try and Put that to one side and say well did he fall out with people did he have his problems in 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 some areas i don't think he did but you, you've got to try and take that's the position that's got to be your starting position of, of not having not not letting your bias show my very first book on the missing episodes there was a lot of things i was told oh his you know th this guy's an idiot and this guy you know there's a lot of politics and i didn't want to get involved in that sort of thing so you know i, I tried to tell the story as scrupulously uh, factually as I possibly could. It's the way you have to do these things. I mean, I, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about the book is the fact that it is all contextualised. You, you've got, as it, it gets broken down into the itinerary as to what was happening on that day, and then you've maybe got a little commentary from yourself, as you say, to contextualise and explain what that meant and, and piecing the, the, the facts together to work out what was going on that day. But then also you've lifted um, quotes from, from Chris Pidmead, Eric Sayward, Anthony Amy, whoever it might be that was relevant at the time so that was one of the things i enjoyed about the book and 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 that's probably why we've got 430 pages of it in there which is that it's very much uh, it, it's it's far more than just a production diary it is very much a case of you, you you get a real feeling for the whole production process that was going on there because of the fact that you get these comments from other key players at the time you're just bringing it all into focus did, did uh, how did you formulate it was it a case that well actually i think all i'll do is just uh, yeah i'll, ju I'll just pr produce I'll, I'll pull all the, the disparate bits together and then just put it out in effect as almost a diary or were you always intending to use that sort of contextualizing information do you think paul venesis was doing his in conversation with peter davison um this is pre-lockdown and pre-covid we were yeah. discussing he was going it was you know looming on the horizon and we we got out for a beer one night and we we're discussing it and i said well i'm pretty sure there's some in very interesting dates i can pull out from john's paperwork for you to give to um be a matthew suite and that's when i started saying pulling things out now i'm sure I've, I've read an interview with peter talking about this potential meeting or whatever so i, I put together a little document for paul and then I, I thought, this is quite fun. And I, it was that, that meeting with Dudley Simpson. I thought, I'm, I know I've read an interview with Dudley where he talks about it from his perspective. Um, That's such a famous meeting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and from John's perspective. And I thought, well, if I just put John went for lunch with Dudley Simpson, people go, well, so what? So to contextualise <laughs> yeah. it, you find that Dudley Simpson interview quote, and you find the, the bit where yeah. John's talking about it. 
and I, I went through a lot of interviews and stuff. And if if it directly um, had a, an impact on what was happening that day, if I thought, right, I know why they're talking about this because that happened then. You, you pull it all together, and all of a sudden you start getting a picture of of what was going on. But you massively increased your workload by doing that, didn't you? It would yeah. be far easier just to put a production diary <laughs> into place. But it was lockdown, and I had bugger all else to do. <laughs> I think we did speak in lockdown. We we did one of these little yeah, we did. Uh, right. chats uh, about the Blu-rays. You might have detected I was going a little bit manic at the time. And doing <laughs> I project, think we all were, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> doing, doing, doing a project like this, it just helped me, it gave me something to do in the mornings. And I'm, I'm guessing the amount of information that you guys were passed over from, from John Nathan Turner's estate I imagine there was a lot of it. There must have been boxes and boxes of this paperwork, etc. I'm also assuming that none of it was sort of collated or in any form of order or chronological order whatsoever. And so was it, Did you know, before you could do anything, was it really a case of you've got to forensically pull this stuff together in laboriously, quite boringly, got to pull this stuff together in date order and try and put them into some sort of cohesive order that would mean you could then work with it you know that that sounds like a thankless task uh, yeah i mean the way i did it I, i'd grab a file say it was an expenses file what i'd do is, is scan them all into a pdf from you know page one to page 50 60. well it, it, that's so superb is one you've got a digital copy of it so you could put the file back yeah. and not have to start getting bits of paper out and move them around um and then once you've got the pdf you can you know start at the top and work down and build it into a word document so you know the second page of the pdf might be a completely different date to the first and it's not in any particular order but when you're writing the word document that's when you start getting the date you know it really is a simple you know we love doing lists as doctor who yeah we do and you start you start building a calendar date you know first of january 1980 second of january 1980 and you start putting things in and that starts building up the picture was there ever a point that you kind of thought, oh, flipping it? No, this is just this is just too much. I, I've had enough. <laughs> or was it done? a case that by then you were so into it and it was engaging you that you got drawn into it? The one thing I, I had to set out a parameter very early on. It was a book about John and John's uh, job as a producer and what John was doing as a producer. So there were lots of things in in lots of bits of paperwork all over the place, which were very relevant to. The production of the program but they might not necessarily have involved john usually once a director was on board the director would be doing um, a lot of the casting be sending out memos visiting locations john would go on some lo most location um recce's and nearly all of the location filming as well i i did, wasn't referencing anything that the directors were doing i wasn't referencing any correspondence between a script editor and a writer i'm sure john was across that but that wasn't john's responsibility John very rarely went to the studio rehearsals, apart from producers run. I mean, occasionally he would drop in if there were problems, if there were things he needed to address, or you know, he was producer and if he wanted to drop one in rehearsal, he damn well would because he was producer. Um, but he wasn't there for every rehearsal. Um, there were other things he had to be getting on with. So it was a question of limiting the information to what was John doing? There's lots of things going on between script editors and writers that aren't in the book because it's, you know, John was producer and he wasn't script editor. There's another book there in that case, isn't there? <laughs> quite, quite possibly, yeah. But I don't know you could do it for any other producer because of the wealth of uh, additional information. You could probably do a very basic thing for 
Graham Williams and, and Philip Hinchcliffe and Barry Letts, but with John there was just so much information and so many different desperate pieces of paperwork that you could start to pull together and help form this cohesive picture of of the 10 years he was there at the BBC in the production office yeah. doing what John did. Well, I'm curious about the all this paperwork and how it survived. I mean, this deluge of information that you've got that breaks everything down into such detail, seemed daily. Is that typical of TV of the of the era? Would it all have been recorded in that way, or was it something that was particular to John and how he liked to work? In terms of, say, his expense forms, what the BBC had, I think, were um, uh, like a, a self-duplicating two-part form. So yeah. you'd write on the top copy yeah. in your biro, blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. You'd staple your, your invoices and that and send it off to the accounts department, and the, the B side, the, the B side, the, you know, the reverse. Oh, yeah. That would go into John's file and keep it in the production office. So we haven't got his receipts and that. We've just got his his copy of, of the expense form. And he would file them and file them and file them. But when the production office was closed in 1990, John and Gary went up there the week before. The production office closed on the the, the final, the, I can't remember if it's the 30th or 31st of August, but the final day in August um, 1990. And there'd be a new production office in there uh, 1st of September. Oh, I see. Um, so everything had to had to go, and John knew exactly what the BBC would do. It would all go in the skip. So him and Gary hired a van, went in and absolutely took everything out of the cabinets, stuck them in bin liners, and chucked them in the van, drove back down wow. to Brighton and chucked the bin liners in the garage. Oh, thank goodness they did that. Yeah, that's where they remained, and that's where Steve Cranford found them after they both passed away. Maybe maybe that gives you some sort of idea of the, of the love or the attachment is maybe a better word i don't know maybe love is the right word that john had for the show because i don't know richard you and i we've both worked in television i've i've had files and files of files of my paperwork from behind the scenes and it's all gone i have absolutely no i've kept a couple of odd pieces for, for, for particular reasons but it's all gone i don't want all that you know it just amazes me to think that I, i'm meant to be a professional researcher and yet when i finish work on the Doctor Who after party and um, the programs I was working on in 2013, Andrew Pixley contacted me and said, can I have copies of your paperwork? And I went, oh God, Andrew, I didn't keep any. Well, no. when did you do this, that and the other? I, said, I really can't remember really now. Really don't know. And this, you know, I should know better than this. The thing, the thing with John as well, him and Gary, they did see Doctor Who as their pension. You know, they'd got a yep. nice little collection of props <laughs> and scripts and the stuff that they knew had value. They probably didn't realise how valuable the paperwork was in terms of the information it contained and they might have got round to it once they cleaned out their collection of scripts but one of the things they did grab from the production office in the production office were vhs cassettes yeah and a lot of them um had 71 edits had studio recordings john thought right a load of free vhs tapes and he recorded over them with coronation street week in uh... <laughs> John. Because he was a big fan of Coronation Street. He did love his Cory, didn't he? Yeah. It's horrifying. I, I still find that so ironic that on the one hand, the 80s is undoubtedly the most well-documented era of the show. And yet there are things, and, and so he was clearly passionate enough about it to want to go and get it all from the production office. But then he didn't think to keep those studio tapes. Oh, you know. We'll oh, I, I don't know that, that John had any kind of intrinsic, you know, I'm, I'm preserving this for future generations. He obviously didn't because he, he'd have gone down to you know somewhere and bought some blank three hour tapes yeah <laughs> do you think richard that john has been somewhat misunderstood by 
fandom and do you think during the research of the book that you've done has it has it helped reevaluate it at all for you do you think we will end fandom will end up with a reevaluated opinion of john because you're right we said right at the top of this that he was a controversial figure and he was a divisive figure and and and, and fandom was never the same since i think there's a whole interesting book to be written about doctor who fandom certainly in the 80s when John was producer it was very London centric and the Doctor Who Appreciation Society executive mainly were based in London they were the people that John used to free, uh, frequently go out and have a beer with once a month or once a week or how often it was you know the CT editor the coordinator a few other people and people like Gary Lee living in Brighton you know initially had access to John via Ian Levine um, so the way that, that fandom interacted with John, it was really London fandom, basically. And that was very cliquey. That was a very specific subculture of fandom. Being in the West Midlands, we had none of that. All we heard is what other fans told us, usually the London fans, you know, when you'd meet people like David Saunders, you know, he came to a few local group meetings in the eighties. Um, I remember meeting Simon at one of those. And we listened to what those people were telling us. Now, yeah. you look at people like Jan Vincent Rudsky, he fell out with John very early on. And I don't think the way he views John has changed. And I don't think he was wrong to view John in the way that he did. But that influenced how other people who Jan spoke to or people that David Saunders spoke to, David was very supportive of John. It did cloud how fandom viewed these things. And then when they'd all meet together at a panopticon or a convention, the first Dwas event I went to was at the Grand Hotel in 1983. And yeah. John Nathan yeah, Turner wasn't at that event, but I remember every time his name was mentioned, there was a lot of booing going on. And I was yeah. like, what's all that about? Yeah, because I was um, the same as you. I loved the show at that point and I loved John's era at that point. So I, I didn't get that either. It's almost Shakespearean, it seems to me, because at the time, you know, when he took over the show, and although there was that thing with the ratings whereby it had suffered a little bit against Buck Rogers and they moved it midweek and, and Davison sort of took his seat and, and things started to started to change within that sort of twice weekly slot, it became uh, a more widely watched show again and started to uh, power through, it seemed, a new era. All that going on and that had to have been noticed by the people who were directly above him. I do wonder, there seems to be a point at which John would have conceivably have been slapped on the back quite a lot by those people for kind of not turning Doctor Who around but anticipating maybe a change in in tastes and embracing the need for change for evolution not necessarily for, for the sake of Doctor Who but just in giving them a show that was fit for purpose that the audience liked and it's extending its life but there's definitely a point isn't there in in this story where if John had ever been in favor with those people above him that he fell out of it and he would then kind of look to the fandom as his allies then. I think what happened actually, the people that John got on with and liked John and gave him the pats on the back moved on. It's oh. the problem that Doctor Who encountered all stems from uh, Jonathan Powell taking over as head of drama uh, or head of series and serials, I beg your pardon, I think it was in 1984, yeah. just as the first Colin Baker series is going into production can't remember off the top of my head who was responsible for making the decision to change the format from 25 minutes to 45 minutes but whoever it was that was a very bad idea without changing the whole structure of the program if you'd done what 
Russell T Davis did in his first season had 45 minute self-contained stories he could have got away with it the sort of thing Blake Seven was doing with its 13 episode seasons but they they tried to make Doctor Who still in you know 100 minute stories or instead of a four-parter yeah. or make that a two-parter and it didn't really work for whatever reason and there are a lot of factors there was a lot of self-sabotage I think with Colin's first season with the time slot with the format with the story choices that Eric Sayward made all coming together to make a series which if Jonathan Powell it's his first six months in the job and John's coming in with the video cassette here's our first story what is it Attack of the Cybermen and he's watching it and going I haven't got a clue what's going on here mm -hmm. <laughs> and then in comes Vengeance on Varos and Mark the Rani and the two doctors and by this point Jonathan Powell's probably losing the will to live because mm -hmm. you know this isn't the sort of drama he, he knew about making. And at about that point, in comes Michael Gray to the BBC. Uh, and Jonathan Powell's suddenly got an ally. He goes to Michael Gray and says, it's Doctor Who, it's a bit rubbish. And Michael Gray went, yeah, what are you doing about it? Now, you know, I've had the benefit to see Paul Venice's fascinating In Conversation with Michael Gray, which will be on the season 22 Blu-ray release. You know, Michael tells a lot of very interesting stuff about that time um, and you know I, I can't wait for people to see that I think it will be the standout extra on, on that release I think John got complacent at exactly the point where he shouldn't get complacent even if his old buddies were still looking after him being his bosses but they weren't he got some new bosses and their knives were already out for Doctor Who I think regardless of how good Doctor Who was at that point it would have come in for a lot more scrutiny and probably would have got cancelled regardless simply because it was a 22 year old tv program and there weren't that many 22 year old tv programs at the bbc then and why should there be but do you think it would have been different because because john was famously just not allowed to leave doctor who he wanted to leave doctor who he's always refused do you think the story would have gone differently had John been allowed to leave in, say, 1985, 86 at the latest, and the BBC had allowed him to do that? And would you think the show might have then got a new lease of life and it might never have come off the air? It's a tough one. I mean, John could have left Doctor Who whenever he wanted, but he'd have had to have left the BBC. Yes. And uh, John didn't want to do that. And, you know, why should he? I don't blame him. Why, yeah. why... He'd been there for years at that yeah. point. He got a very nice pension brewing up, thank you very much. And you, you don't walk away from the BBC. The BBC makes you redundant, as they ultimately did with John. So he was in the unfortunate position. He could have walked at any point, but he would have lost all of his BBC benefits and his long service record. And um, there wasn't really in the 80s that much of a private sector in television like there was in the 90s. And Absolutely. And, and now, so it was a very unknown um, shot, uh, leap in the dark that, that mm. John was contemplating if he'd mm. done that. So he was stuck between um, a rock and a hard place because the people above him, I don't think, had any intention of, of giving John another project. I don't think they liked him very much, mm. which is sad. They didn't like Doctor Who, so they thought instead of having two problems, we'll just have the one keep John with Doctor Who and let's see what happens if john had ever gone i don't think they'd have got a new producer in and said let's you know see what you can do with it they'd have just said well that's that problem solved thank you very much yeah next yeah, yeah. it has kind of tinged that even perhaps not the entire nine years that he was producer it's tinged a lot of the era with that sense of um impending 
doom. It's the kind of how when you watch Legopolis, <laughs> you, know, you, can, he, you can hear the bells ringing and yeah. we, can, we can imagine what was going on behind the scenes. I think a lot of us, a lot of us do that. And it's all been quite sensationalized in the past, I feel. I think there's a lot, a lot of urban myths out there about John, about his time as a producer. And maybe there's a lot of things that are, God's honest, completely and utterly true. And it was exactly as the stories say. But as I said, when we when we uh, came into the show, John didn't get into the into the producer's chair on a wing and a prayer, did he? He, he fought hard for that role. He'd earned it over an extended period of time. And he was bloody good at his job, wasn't he? Certainly, uh, yes, production unit manager under Graham Williams. You know, uh, certainly City of Death wouldn't have happened with uh, anyone but John, I think, um, being in charge of the budgets and the first strings. There are conflicting stories, and I don't know how true they are, that um, other people were also considered alongside John. Whether that's people just trying to keep John on his toes by saying, oh, you know, it's not a given son, there are other people we're, yeah. we're thinking about. I really don't know the truth of the matter. But I do think with John, he he did want to get out at several points and you can see see it very clearly he wanted to go at the end of season 23 you know that the eric sayward stuff had left him uh, you know, really broken he, he was not at all happy about how he was maneuvered into dispensing with colin baker and he he thought he really legitimately thought he was going at the same time so to have to make season 24 um, with no doctor, no script editor, no scripts. Um, I think his enthusiasm for the programme was at its lowest ebb then. Yeah, I think it's a, a testament really to Andrew Cartman and Sylvester McCoy that they managed to inject a bit more enthusiasm with John. So when season 25 comes around, I think John's having a rip-roaring old time again, but he still wanted to go at the end of season 25. And he's dragged back for season 26. And I think that's the point where John was like, oh, okay, going through the motions. And you can sort of see that yes, a little bit in, in the way that season 26 is produced. I think Andrew Cartmel's enthusiasm compensates for a, a lot of that at the time. And the stories were very interesting that year. They weren't, I don't think, the, the, the best stories that um, Doctor Who's ever done. But, but it seems like J&T picked up on how he was feeling and knew he had to delegate some of this even if he didn't know ultimately where it would end and precisely when it would end he knew that an end was was coming and it couldn't carry on indefinitely and so he'd got people i'm not in his care but people who were still looking to him as the producer as the head of this production and i suppose he had professional pride and and responsibility to, ability towards them to uh, extend their careers and give them opportunities too. andrew andrew being a prime example i suppose i think the interesting thing is as well that, that you the manoeuvres to move Doctor Who to outside production that went on in 1989 um, above John's head. John wasn't, I'm sure, um, involved uh, or even knew about them. But I think there was a definite um, intent on the BBC's part to find a, a future for Doctor Who with an outside production company, which had probably been uh, Verity Lambert's company. And there was a, you know, a commitment, OK, we won't have Doctor Who in uh, 1990. The way the BBC worked, it was... Um, financial year so you start first of april and go through to the end of march and there was no provision to make doctor who in that financial year at the bbc once season 26 had, had finished production so there was a deal they hoped to be made with the outside production company with bbc enterprises um to make 20 episodes of doctor who 14 of which would have been on air in 1991 six 
would have been held over for 1992 and another batch of episodes. Oh. Would have, they weren't looking to ditch Doctor Who as permanently as they did in 1989, but BBC Enterprises suddenly realised the commitment they needed to make to uh, financially uh, to make this happen and, and backed out of the deal. And that's what did for Doctor Who. What could have happened in a parallel world, gentlemen? We're about to shoot you off into a parallel dimension right now, and it's filled with unmissable geeky treats, amazing analysis, and a cracking conversation courtesy of our friends on all the other shows across the Fandom Podcast Network. Here's our friend Kevin with a few words about all of that. Then we'll be back with more from Simon, Richard, and myself, and more secrets and mysteries from the production diary of John Nathan Turner. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. We'd like to continue to feed your ears by inviting you to listen to these other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. It starts with our flagship show, Culture Clash, discussing the latest in entertainment pop culture. Blood of Kings, Immortals Take Notice, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theaters, where we celebrate our favorite movies. Time Warp, the Fandom Flashback podcast discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie and TV pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Union Federation, our Star Trek and Orville show. Hair Metal, the 80s and early 90s rock metal podcast. Type 40, our show covering the time-traveling Doctor Who universe with host Dan Hadley. Lethal Mullet, an 80s and 90s action film podcast with host Adam P. O'Brien. Also check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, a Star Wars podcast with hosts Scott, Derek, and Nathan. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast, a deep dive into the final frontier with hosts Mark Newbold and Adam P. O'Brien. And check out our newest shows, The Fandom Show, our monthly fandom podcast network live YouTube exclusive show about the month's hottest topics in fandom, and the FPN True Believers MCU podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the related Marvel television and streaming MCU universe, including the connections to the original Marvel comics. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on several platforms. Please subscribe to the Fandom Podcast Network YouTube channel to receive notifications of new podcast episodes and live events. You can enjoy all of the Fandom Podcast Network audio podcasts on our master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. Fandom Podcast Network is on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and iTunes. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. You can also find the Fandom Podcast Network on Instagram at Fandom Podcast Network and on Twitter at FanPod Network. Thank you for listening and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Yes, we've teased and tantalized you there, and we can even clothe you too. There's merch to match all of those shows, including Type 40. If you head over to tpublic.com, search for the Fandom Podcast Network, and you'll see a store full of all the team colors for all of the shows on everything from T-shirts to phone cases and even tapestries. Seeing is believing. <laughs> Treat yourself, treat your other selves, and it all goes to support the Fandom Podcast Network into the bargain. So everybody wins yes we're still enjoying richard molesworth's company here on type 40 hearing all about his new book the uh, john nathan turner doctor who production diary no less and the uh, the publication of this book has been timed to coincide with the 20th anniversary of jnt's passing away 
Where's all that time gone, Simon? God, you know what? I can still remember it as clear as yesterday, getting a text message um, to say that, that, that he passed away and just couldn't quite believe it. You know, and I'm, I, I still think it's just such a sad loss to the Doctor Who world because, you know, Richard, you're, you're so involved with the Blu-ray range now. Can you imagine if John was around today? I, I like to think, and I think I'm right in thinking this, that he would really be heavily involved uh, with the with the DVDs and the Blu-ray ranges latterly, doing commentaries, interviews. He'd be there, wouldn't he? Uh, abso absolutely. And it, it mystifies me a little bit why we didn't get John sooner. I mean, he passed away in 2002 the range really started in 1999 and we only managed to do one interview with him which was on um resurrection of the daleks yeah. there were plans for him to do a commentary for the leisure hive um he was just too ill to take part once we got the the, the poor venisa's putting the dates together and and organizing the studio so it was just so desperately sad and you just don't think of John, or at the time, as John as being somebody that was, you know, mortal and would mm. um, would succumb to something so insidious as the um, the problem that he had, which was, uh, you know, um, not something that should have, have killed him, but yes. did. And I often wonder, Simon, not what J&T would think, not just of Doctor Who now, but of TV now, of the media now, uh, of social media now, and, and the internet, and all the things, all the possibilities and capabilities of everything we have now at our disposal through touchscreens, through content, I suppose. Do you feel, Richard, as somebody who's, who's researched him, who's been through his production diaries and probably knows his thought processes fairly well through all that, do you think you've picked up on any clues of where he, he may have gone, what other projects he would have attempted, or where he, his future may have been? Because if things had been differently, he could have had another 20, 30 years in TV, couldn't he? Very much so. Um, he was very much suited towards light entertainment. It mystifies me how he ended up in the drama department, to be honest. If he'd been <laughs> in charge of doing, you know, the, the Generation Game or the Novels Roadshow or stuff like that, you know, the Saturday evening Anton yeah. Depp style show. Was he just the best producer that Corrie never had? Quite possibly, although um, <laughs> I've never watched Corrie. Me neither. <laughs> Can't stand it. I, I think he's <laughs> I have a feel for what it's about and whether John would have been good for it or not. Didn't Phil Collinson do Corrie for a bit? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. I, I, and I, I don't think his tenure was that well embraced by the Corrie fans, so I don't know. I think John's enthusiasm would certainly have been to do something like Corrie. I mean, he was trying to get, um, with Peter Ling, um, a remake of the 1960s soap opera compact remade as wow, Impact. Really? Yeah, um, and he kept on having various meetings with Peter Ling and trying to get Jonathan Powell interested in getting the BBC to make that, and Jonathan Powell wasn't interested, or whoever the head of department was. It might not have been Jonathan Powell, it might have been uh, David Reed. He, he was always looking for that next project. He was, you know, towards the end of his time on Doctor Who in the, the late 80s, looking to do a series of, of, of books in the kind of similar vein to All Creatures Great and Small about um i can't remember the name of the author now but he went and, and spent a weekend with the guy and um, was talking i think with a few of the doctor who script writers and directors from the sylvester mccoy era about the project and trying to get that greenlit 
and that would have been very much in the you know the traditional BBC One cosy family drama sort of time, um, which again I think you know John with his experience on all creatures great and small could have perhaps pulled off. But at the same time, he was a bit of a dinosaur even within the BBC in the 80s and the way the BBC was going and the way we know it went, you know, all the various departments closing down and outsourcing to outside production companies. I don't know that John would ever have got a, a position with an outside production company. He did with Fiona Cumming set up his own production company, Tainum, um, but that limited itself really to doing stage shows, pantomimes, theatre production. I don't think John had the drive anymore to push himself forward and to to push for that new career in television. I think I, th I think it's possible maybe that that, that that his latter years on Doctor Who just had sort of drained him and and broken him to an extent and had maybe drained that desire. Do you think that's possible? I think there was that, and I think he was quite financially secure, and the conventions were still an income source mm -hmm. for him. And one he didn't have to be coy about anymore. Now he wasn't on BBC staff. You know, he yeah. could very openly say, "Yes, I'll come. This is what I want as a fee." And blah blah yeah. blah, blah. He was doing the various events at Longleat and the Doctor Who experience at that Welsh place I can never pronounce, Langollen. Langollen. That's near enough. That's the chappy. Um, so I think he was just doing enough to keep him afloat and keep him entertained keep his ego as massaged as he needed it to be. I don't think he had the push, the desire to do anything more than that. One of the things I like about the book is that there is a very heartfelt introduction to the book from Andrew Cartmel, which kind of just recalibrates it all somewhat, just reminds us what we do have to be thankful for with John. And I do kind of think really in recent years that John's tenure on Doctor Who has been reevaluated to a certain extent. I think, as we've talked about, it was a divisive and a controversial period for the show. But I think a lot of that controversy and divisiveness has now been forgotten. And now what we are actually remembering is the parts of John's era that we did like um, and that we did enjoy. And, and I think very much to echo what you said, Richard, right at the top of this, which is John, for me, produced some of my very, very favourite Doctor Who shows and also my very, very least favourite Doctor Who shows. And I think he made some spectacularly good decisions and some spectacularly bad decisions. But I do feel now, in balance, we're as fandom uh, of, of our age who lived through it, we are, are now able to look back on it and, as I say, just just recalibrate slightly and remember the stuff that we did enjoy from John. The thing that... I, I still see, feel regretful about is that John himself didn't live long enough to see that happen. He didn't live long enough to see that re-evaluation and to see that actually the people who had, we'd all enjoyed something in the John Nathan Turner era, as you said earlier, Richard. Um, and as I say, we're now remembering that. And I think it's a shame that I don't think he ever saw his time re-evaluated. Do you think that's fair? I, yeah. I... Forgive me if I sound a bit name droppy here, but I got um, an invite to the BAFTA screening of the TV movie in '96. Yeah, uh, there were two screens that day. One was the first one was for all the TV execs from the BBC and Yentob and all those malarkeys, and there was one in the evening, and people like Barry Letts and Terence Dix were there. And I, uh, I arrived there and went to the bar, and, and John and Gary were in the bar, and I got to know John a little at that point. You know, I said to, I think he'd seen the, the 
the screening for the first time earlier that afternoon. I said, uh, bet you wouldn't have made it like that. And he said, it doesn't matter. Someone's making it. I'm just glad I wasn't the last producer of Doctor Who. Someone That's else it. has had to go now. And it, it, saw, it really did feel to me that a, a bit of a weight, a bit of a burden had been lifted from his shoulders. He wasn't the man that killed Doctor Who anymore. Interesting. It's a shame that it's a shame that he had to feel like that. But the evaluation, definitely. I, I remember how disappointed, Simon, you were when season 24 was announced as a Blu-ray yeah. box set. Yeah. And hand on heart, it's not my favourite season of classic Doctor Who by a country mile. Mm. Um, but also hand on heart, it's my favourite Blu-ray box set that I've worked mm -hmm. on simply mm -hmm. because of the breadth and scope of material that's on there. Out of all of the seasons of Doctor Who, I don't think I've, I've ever changed my mind about a season as much as I have with season 24. I can never forgive Time of the Rani for being Time of the Rani. <laughs> uh, but once you move past that, I think Paradise Towers and particularly Delta and the Bannermen. I love Delta and the Bannermen, don't yeah. I, everybody? Anybody who listens or watches the show, they know that I love Delta and the Bannermen. And at the this time, I, I remember thinking, oh, Dragonfire, best story of the season. I think it's the worst now. Yeah, I um, agree. I, I think Delta and the Bannermen has really it's not a great story but you could see it being <laughs> yeah. you could see it being made today with well you know 10 years ago maybe with with matt smith or david tennant or even peter capaldi doing a, a you know a really good job of, of being that sort of type of story with the completion of this project richard 400 odd pages of it my god how does it feel when you deliver a work like this is it sort of scratched an itch and got something out of your system or do you immediately start thinking about other projects you've said at least four or five times there's another book in this there's another book in that is that how your mind works i think if it hadn't been for lockdown i wouldn't have done a book i'd done um wiped and the robert holmes biography wiped was 2010 robert holmes 2013 i really had no desire after those two to do another book ever again because <laughs> frankly they are such um hard things to do and to write and yes they do sell and they make a little bit of money but they don't ever um, you know, uh, I, I couldn't make a living on the money I made from those books, but it's very gratifying when people do buy them and do, um, you know, tell me that they, they enjoyed reading them. Um, so it was simply was the, the need to do something to stop myself going mad in lockdown, um, to give myself a project that I could get my teeth into. And, uh, you know, I started in 2020, I sent the final manuscript off to Telos in november last year i think it was so it was a good 18 months maybe 15 months um writing and of course you know we weren't in constant lockdown for those 15 months so and i i was working on the blu-rays and there were times when i had to put the book aside for a few uh, weeks or a few months to concentrate on the, the management of the blu-ray projects so it wasn't a, a you know a constant workload uh, but once i you know clicked the send and sent the manuscript off and obviously there's a, a lot of proofing and correction and sub-editing that David and and Steve do at Telus and they're you know they're great people to work with in that respect getting the final sign off and think you know I'm looking forward to seeing an actual printed copy of the book it's it's out in a, a week's time and I still haven't seen a you know a final finished copy hopefully next week you know until I actually get the finished thing on my hand on my shelf I can't actually say yeah that one's finished tick that box um, I've got no real desire to jump straight into another project i will always <laughs> always say well that'd be a good project that'd be a good <laughs> never say never yeah that's like a good project for someone not necessarily me do you think richard having sort of completed the work on now do you think you and we as a readership will understand 
John Nathan Turner more now or less? Do you think you've answered more questions than you've asked? Or actually, has it asked even more questions now with the John Nathan Turner era? I think there's always going to be something new to discover and a new, as a new aspect, a new way of looking at things. If nothing else, if people have read Richard Marson's book, it will act as a good um, uh, counterpoint juxtaposition to what Richard was doing. If you haven't read Richard's book, it, you don't necessarily have to. If you're solely interested in uh, how Doctor Who was made in the 1980s and uh, how the new producer approached things from day one to his very last day in the job, this is the book for you. It's the, it's the only... One of the things I, I, I wanted to do with the project, just to backpedal a little bit, you know, we've all read the marvellous Andrew Pixley um, archive articles yeah. in Doctor Who magazine, yeah. which takes you from the first pitch of a story through to the director approaching, to the rehearsals, to the uh, location filming, to the studio days, the editing and the transmission. And it tells the story from beginning to end of a story. But what I wanted to do was overlap all those stories. Um, and so you can see how problems with Enlightenment had issues with Terminus, um, had issues with um, the first iteration of Resurrection of the Daleks and how a season progressed and had various knock-on consequences for other things in the production. And I don't think that's really been told before in terms of Doctor Who and the production of Doctor Who. A, a sense of that I certainly wanted to try and convey and you know, I hope I've done so. Um, but it really is an overview of John's decade as a producer of Doctor Who. And if, if people that have got an interest still in, in the 80s and the classic Doctor Who uh, are, are interested in that sort of thing, then I hope they can read it and find lots of new things that haven't been published, printed, written about before. Well, Preaching to the quiet here, eh, Simon? <laughs> well, absolutely, because, I mean, you know, Richard, you said earlier on that there's nothing Doctor Who fans love more than making a list. Well, there's also nothing more that Doctor Who fans love than the minutiae, the tiny little details. We are obsessed by these kind of details. And, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things in the book that I noticed that I, I never knew before, that uh, the Exeter Book Week, for example, wanted to, to get K-9 there, um, or that CFAX wanted to interview K-9, both of which were rejected, apparently, by John. I think there's always, as you say, something new to discover about Doctor when you think everything's been written there's always going to be something comes along. I do sometimes wonder whether we're just mining too deeply into a very insubstantial no. whole face at times. <laughs> no, no um, we're not. No, we're yeah. definitely not. Crazy talk people, Richard, people, crazy talk. Well people who don't know really about Doctor Who and fandom they say oh what do you do Richard? I say, oh you know I'm a producer and a project manager and I write for magazines and <laughs> I've done a couple of books. Oh, what the books about, Doctor Who? Oh, do they have Daleks in? <laughs> you know, and someone said to me Try and explain like, the episodes book, and they, they just... Look, totally blank. Somebody said to me once, they said, Dan, there must be more words written about Doctor Who now than about the works of William Shakespeare. I sort of nodded and sort of mulled it over. They, they said that to me in 1990. Can you imagine what they'd say now? So this is the John Nathan Turner Doctor Who production diary by Richard Molesworth with an introduction by Andrew Cartmel, available now from Telos Books, price 19.99. Links are in the description and the show notes to that, or you can head over to uh, telos.co.uk and you'll find it there in their shop, along with the numerous other titles, whatever's still in print of their other stuff, that's there too. But yeah, best of luck with this new book, Richard, and thanks again. It's delightful to see you again. Thank you both. Thanks for having me. You know, Simon, I could get quite envious of Richard sometimes. <laughs> I mean, and then we speak to him and he goes through the details of the process yeah. behind 
bringing a publication like this to reality. Yeah. And I think, wow, you've got to really uh, have a nose for research and so much self-discipline, as well as probably hundreds of other qualities to, to go through that amount of information and to not just to bring it to life and to bring it all together, but to serve it up in a way which we can process it at the other end. But also, don't you think it's fascinating? I know as a fan, just the thought of just literally getting your hands physically into that paperwork, into those records, those those, those expense sheets and things. God, it's just it's just fascinating to think of. As we talked about in the chat there with Richard, as Doctor Who fans, we just are kind of obsessed by detail, by minutiae. And so the thought of just, of just seeing that treasure trove of, of paperwork and thank goodness it got saved in, in some form. I mean, knockout that it's been salvaged. You do wonder if when he saved all this information, he, he could have never have foreseen, for example, an age of Blu-ray box sets where we get hundreds of pages of PDFs of such things as, as exclusive content and that these things would be, it's almost archeological, the level of interest that that's directed at these bits of A4 paper that were passed around production offices and, and up, up and down departments, either below or above or whatever else. And you do wonder, you know, would he have been comfortable with all of this being seen? But but then again, from what I know, I mean, I never, I met him a couple of times, but you actually knew the man. Do you think he'd have been amused by all of this? I think he'd have been amused. I think he'd have laughed like a drain, to be perfectly honest. Lunch uh, breaks and, and all these kind of things that people are talking. He met so-and-so for lunch. He did this, he went there, he went that. It, it, it's funny, isn't it? It is It is funny. I think I think part of him would have laughed like a drain and part of him actually would have been really chuffed to think that... Because as, as, you, as you said in the introduction, Dan, he was a showman. Uh, he was not shy and retiring. He wanted to get out there. And so I think I think he would actually be quite chuffed to think that people were now pouring over this kind of stuff um, and and were using it to reevaluate his era maybe and, and we're just giving a recognition as I say I, I I never got the feeling with John that he was egotistical I could be completely wrong on that but but it, but likewise as I say he wasn't somebody that hid behind a door uh, he was happy to talk to people to be talked about um, and so I think the fact that we were now we're now talking about it <laughs> twenty years sadly after he died, I, I think he I honestly think he'd be made up. Obviously, characters like John Nathan Turner, we probably won't see their like again no. because the nature of entertainment has changed, the nature of television yeah. has changed. People because you know, John came from a theatre background, didn't he, initially and wanted to be an actor. Whereas I suppose now we're more aware, aren't we, successive generations that going into television is a viable career, just television for television's sake, rather than working our way through theatre or radio, whatever else. So on one hand, he seems like, even though it's only been 20 years since he passed away, he seems like a historical figure. Well, of course, he is a historical figure. And this is, this is, you know, we kind of forget it, certainly for, for, for people of our generation, Dan, who, who lived through the JNT era, we kind of forget that it's a long time ago now. And he is literally a historical figure. Uh, and, and he is part of that Doctor Who history that is now long, long since gone. But this is where I think, as I say, with John, he was very much striving to do what we've now got today in modern Doctor Who. 
again, for better or worse, he really wanted to push the envelope with who. Sometimes he got it right, sometimes he got it wrong. That's that's for each individual to debate as to, as to where they think he got it right and wrong. But that's what he was striving for. He was striving for, for what we now have with modern who. And I think had he had the kind of money that modern Doctor Who has, you would have got a very, very different show yeah. to the one that we got under John Nathan Turner. It's impossible to say whether it would have been better or worse. We don't know. It might have been that he'd be given him that much money and it would have turned into into some sort of singing, all singing, all dancing extravaganza kind of thing. <laughs> much, we don't know because, because he had big ideas. He thought big. I think it would have been uh, excessive and explosive and unmissable. Yeah. I know that obviously this is our collectively our favorite era or at least an era that we talk about the very very most we're bound to revisit this subject again yeah. and uh i already i i can't wait because something as the box sets continue to roll out as the blu-rays continue to to be released there's always fresh bits of information new documentaries there and it does seem that whilst i'd say that this particular book richard's new book I don't see how anybody could get access to more information than that. I'm still reluctant to say that any any title, any book, any documentary is the final word mm. on any subject connected with Doctor Who. I'm sort of thinking I can't wait to, to find out what's next. I mean, I, I heartily recommend this book. It's complementing my my childhood memories as well as any rewatches that I may do now, and it doesn't harm the memory in yeah. any way i think that's a, a testimony to richard's skills as a writer yeah like you i'm i'm part way through and it's cracking really that's the old girl starting up and calling time on this episode of type 40 a doctor who podcast of course i'll be back with another one soon enough look out for that wherever you found this it could have been on the dedicated home feed for type 40 type 40.podbean.com maybe we we rolled up on the podcatcher of your choice it's apple podcasts spotify stitcher iHeartRadio, tune in google play Podbay, any of those and we're still on the fabulous fandom podcast networks dedicated master feed there loaded up with all those treats for your ears maybe you'd like to have your say on all of this everything that we've talked about today with richard or the jnt era generally you can let us know what you think of it maybe we've it completely wrong maybe we've got it all right it's the first time for everything let us know instagram and twitter at type 40 doctor who or you can join us in real time in the type 40 facebook group where there's generations upon regenerations of doctor who fans talking about the classic series talking about the new series and speculating about the all new that's to come from 2023 simon where can people get in touch with you on social media remind me and come on facebook that's that's the only place I exist in, in the digital world is on Facebook. But if you look at the Hoonatics, W-H-O-N-A-T-I-C-S, you'll find a pretty vibrant group going on there. And uh, you'll find me there as one of the admins. You'll find me on Instagram and Twitter as the Spacebook, where I'm wheezing and groaning, posting and sharing, ranting and raving, mostly about all things geeky inside and outside of the TARDIS. That's another one wrapped up. We can't wait to tell you about some of the other guests we've got coming up on Type 40 of Doctor Who podcast for the rest of 2022. But uh, you're going to have to follow us and like us and subscribe and all that for the first word 
on what's coming next. We always have the time. If you have the space here at Type 40, that's it this time. Take care. We'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye. A Doctor Who podcast is a space book production for the Fandom Podcast Network with music by Problem Being.